Welcome to Meta Talks. This podcast is brought to you by Meta. We support startups, industry and government with sustainable technology-driven innovation. Here you will hear from amazing individuals on topics around startups, innovation, sustainability and dive deeper into industries like aerospace or energy. Welcome everyone to Meta Talks. I'm Gabby, the co-founder and partner of Meta and your host today. I have someone very special with me. John is the CEO and co-founder of FICOBLOOM. He also has a background in material science and a passion for creating the sustainable energy systems of the future. And he's definitely doing that with FICOBLOOM. FICOBLOOM is using synthetic biology to create novel strains of algae that will use CO2 to create affordable and sustainable hydrocarbons. Welcome, John Waite. Hello, great to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's great to have you. Maybe to kick us off for those listeners that don't know all about this, what is a biofuel? Yeah, a biofuel is chemically identical to a fossil fuel. It's, it's, a, it's a hydrocarbon that you can put into an engine and blow up, or you can crack it and turn it into, into some kind of petrochemical product if, if, if you so wish. The difference is how it's made. So I think the easiest way to think about this is is where the carbon comes from. So when we when we have a fossil fuel, we dig the carbon out of the ground and we burn it, and that carbon ends up in the air. With a biofuel, you're basically using a living organism as a substrate to take carbon out of the air and then turn it into a fuel. So that when you burn it, you're just releasing that carbon back into the air. So it's a closed loop where after you've taken your transatlantic flight, there's no more CO2 in the air than there was two years ago. And then, and then the the really the really interesting stuff is where we get into where that biofuel comes from. Does it come from a plant that is grown, like palm oil or soy oil, or does it come from a uh, tree bark, or does it come from perhaps microorganisms like like algae, which is obviously where where phycobloom work. Mm. All right. Well, you will now understand why this episode is called Biofuels Hero or Villain. We will dig into this more. But before we do, I mean, John, we've known each other for a bit now. I've met John at the ATI Boeing Accelerator, which he took part in, which now feels like years ago, but I feel like it was this year. <laughs> a, few, a few months ago, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a few months ago. For our audience, can you introduce yourself uh, a little bit more and also tell us more about Bloom? Yeah, sure. So my background, as you said, really isn't in in algae or in biology. I'm a I'm a material scientist in my undergraduate in, in material in um, metallurgy, sorry. Uh, and I I really sort of got interested in energy through nuclear power. I did my PhD on on nuclear materials, and it was such a rewarding experience for me to build to to work towards clean energy. And I knew as soon as I started, I was like, I I can never do anything else. And I, this is where I wanted to be, like working towards difficult questions that help push back climate change. After I finished my PhD, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. And I ended up starting uh, a project at Entrepreneur First, where I met my lovely co-founder, Ian Hu. And we we sort of brainstormed for a while. And we, we eventually realized that what we really wanted to build was a really something really important, something that had huge impact. And what could have more impact than taking the carbon out of carbon fuels, which is, is what we like to think biofuels do. I suppose the, t the sort of two founding beliefs that started FICO Bloom off were firstly that the biofuels are going to become a hugely important part of the energy mix, particularly as 
aviation decarbonizes. The second belief is that current biofuels just aren't really good enough. That's that's maybe the villainous side of biofuels, that soy can be used to make a biofuel, but if you do that, your carbon emissions can be even higher than if you used a fossil fuel because of all the land use changes and additives that have to go into it. So what we're trying to do at FICA Bloom is make sure that uh, the best version of biofuels for the planet is also the best version of biofuels for people's wallets as well. So algae are incredible creatures. They're a hundred times more efficient at converting CO2 into fuels than trees than other plants. They don't need clean water. They don't need agricultural land. They they really can just be grown in a plastic bag on a concrete slab if, if, if you so wished. So they can be incredibly sustainable. And the big problem at the moment is, is how you make them cost effective. How do you reduce the price of the oils you get out? Because in order to get oils out of algae, you have to first dry out the, the broth that they live in. You have to then break the cells down and extract the lipids, the hydrocarbons, out from them. And it's it's very difficult and it's very expensive. So, so what we're doing at Phycobloom is using synthetic biology to create strains of algae that basically poop oils out while they're still alive. The idea being that you could grow these algae blooms in a pond or in a reactor and then just constantly siphon off the oils as they're produced and as they're released. So it's a much more uh, efficient, and a much cheaper way to use these incredible microorganisms to, to make something valuable like fuel. Absolutely get that. So, you know, from the beginning in, in that sense, why especially algae biofuel? How did that idea come about? Yeah, well, uh, as a material scientist, algae biofuels aren't at the top of my list of, of expertise, but my co-founder Ian, he <laughs> he's a microbiologist and molecular biologist extraordinaire, and he's always loved the weird and wonderful creatures that live microscopically around the world and I think it was something that he had seen from a distance for a long time and always wanted to get stuck into and he'd been whilst whilst he was studying whilst he was doing his PhD he was thinking about this and and planning out how he would address these problems and then as soon as you unleashed him and you gave him the opportunity to get stuck in he's he's just launched himself so the idea the idea technically came from him but from the side of how you actually tackle the problem of making sustainable biofuels, algae are just such an obvious choice. They are the most incredible organisms. They don't need agricultural land like most, most plants will. So they're kind of a silver bullet for biofuel creation, for, for creating sustainable fuels that we can power our planes and cars and stuff with. The, big, the biggest challenge with them is how, how do you make them cost competitive? Building an algae plant and then and then growing these algae and breaking them down and actually making them give up the oils that they're creating. That, that's a hugely expensive process. It takes a lot of equipment. It takes a lot of expertise. So what Ian's, Ian's and mine, our company is doing is, is making algae strains that are able to do all the hard work for you. You grow your algae. They basically release their oils while they're still alive into their, into their pond or into their reactor uh, where they can just be separated from water in a, in a normal sort of classical chemical process. It's, the idea being that that can make it much, much cheaper and, and allow these algae biofuels to actually compete with with fossil fuels and with regular biofuels, which is what they need to do. Amazing. And you're obviously not the first team to try this, um, and it's a pretty tough uh, nut to crack. Why is now a good time and why are you guys the right people to do it? Yes, yeah, so it's a great question. Any Anyone who's heard of algae biofuels before has heard of the, the boom <laughs> and bust cycle that has happened. I think the last one finished in sort of 2012, 2013 when, um, 
when the oil price crashed again uh, and it was pretty obvious that nothing was going to be able to compete with fossil fuels. As I said, it's it's the cost of algae that makes them, you know, not a suitable technology at the moment. And how we're going to crack it is we're going to use the synthetic biology tools that are available now that weren't available before. You know, biotech and synthetic biology has come on so far in the last 10 years and the tools we have at our disposal now could not even have been dreamed of 10 years ago. Things like CRISPR, things like just the sheer volume of, of sequencing information and, and genetic information that's available now is, is unparalleled. That's our main tool. We're also learning as much as we can from others. So we have a really great team of advisors and investors, some of which were were there in the last boom and bust cycle. We're, we're learning from what they say and, and, and taking on board their, their lessons, basically, and, and moving onwards. Amazing. Yeah, that makes sense. And maybe, I mean, I'm very lucky to have you here with me today. Obviously, a very vast resource of knowledge. <laughs> so let's maybe take a step back. Biofuels are not the only path to a more decarbonized future. Can you tell us more about what the landscape looks like at the moment? Yeah, so particularly within aviation, which I think is obviously what everyone here cares about, there are a lot of ideas and they each have their own specific applications. They each have their own specific drawbacks. Whether or not they actually are sustainable depends what you put into them, what you make it out of. Electric aviation is probably the easiest to make sure it's sustainable because green electricity is something that renewables and nuclear power can produce pretty easily, pretty readily. You can, you can get it on the grid now. The challenge is, is, is making an electric plane. You know, A lithium battery is more than 50 times worse at storing energy Than a, than a carbon fuel. So you have to have a lot more weight, a lot more mass to have a lot worse power effectively. So building a large plane that can reliably take off coast and land is, is very, very difficult. And it's, it's probably not achievable. Realistically, these sort of electric flights, they're going to they're be mostly unmanned. They're going to be sort of city-wide taxis perhaps, but probably not much further than that. Very small passenger numbers. Another big problem with using lithium batteries for aviation is that a lot of the learning we're doing is, is in the automotive sector and a, a plane is not the same as a car and the energy demands and the energy profile of a journey in a car is very very different to a plane and they're not comparable if you imagine if you imagine a car you know you turn the engine on and then you put an increasing amount of power until you coast and you're, you continue putting in power and then as you slow down the power consumption drains whereas With a plane, it's the opposite. You have an extremely high power requirement at takeoff. It then decreases quite a lot as you're flying through the air. And then at landing, your power requirement boosts massively again. The difficulty of designing a battery that can do that is different again. I mean, and the fact that automotive is so different means there's a lot of learnings that cannot be carried over. Mm. It sounds as if you are not very keen to be flying with an electric plane. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't like to be the first person here. I, I, I really do believe they, they are coming. They, they will serve a certain niche. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll be bringing things to you. They will be taking you short journeys around a city. I mean, if someone said they built a hundred-person passenger jet that uses electric, I, I would be skeptical to get in it first. But I mean, they're definitely coming. I don't want to boohoo the, ele the electric plane. The other big one is, is hydrogen. Hydrogen is it's the silver bullet of so many industries. And th there's a good reason for that. It's, it's a very abundant fuel carry. You know, it's in, it's in all water. It can be easily made from green energy and it can be easily used as an energy store if you make it in a clean way, either from renewables or by uh, sort of capturing any carbon emissions that are created from it. Um, the, the downside is it's going to require like huge amounts of infrastructure changes. If you think of a, an airport, they store large amounts of carbon fuels. But if an airport starts storing huge amounts of, of hydrogen fuel, 
the only place you can be able to do that is really by, as far as I'm aware, like digging a huge bunker underneath the runway and storing hydrogen down there, which has a lot of a lot of risks and a lot of dangers, and it's a very difficult thing to do. You're going to have to be shutting airports down for, for potentially years while you do that. Yeah, sounds like a massive undertaking. Yeah, exactly. And, and to be fair, the green revolution will require huge amounts of infrastructure changes for all industries. This is not this is not unique to aviation. Hydrogen is going to become something that we use every day for lots of different things. So there will be learnings that we can get there. Yeah, the other the other big thing is, is drivetrains. You know, at the moment, a jet engine works by blowing carbon up out the back and driving itself forward like that. Shifting that over to hydrogen is is not simple. It's definitely doable, but it's not simple. And it's going to take time to to design planes around that process. The good news is that there are things that we can do in the meantime. So there are companies out there that are retrofitting current planes for hydrogen. So you, I think the idea is you remove some of the baggage space and you replace it with hydrogen tanks. And that would mean that we don't have to wait till 2050 to have uh, our planes out there. We can we can get them up in the air much sooner than that. So I'll keep my fingers crossed there. A, a really big barrier for hydrogen, though, is availability. You know, at the moment, it's quite an expensive fuel. That price is coming down as the cost of electrolyzers and the cost of green electricity come down. But the demand is also really increasing. Industries like steels, like aluminium, like shipping, like chemical manufacture, like grid level storage, all want hydrogen. And even if the supply increases a hundredfold, the demand is going to increase more than that. And to be honest, aviation is not in that top tier of industries that need hydrogen. So we're, we're we are not going to be at the top of the list of people that are getting it if it does become a limited resource. So we have to be, we have to be really careful. That's obviously where where biofuels come in. You know, biofuels are different from hydrogen electric because they are, are, are a one to one switch with fossil kerosene. They can be blended in. You can they have and you can fly planes where the fuel is half biofuel and half fossil fuel. So it's it's a, it's a very smooth takeoff. The same infrastructure can be used. And they do work with very large, long-distance planes. Going back to hydrogen, you're probably never going to get more than a, a single-aisle plane using hydrogen just because of the weight limitations. It's going to be a sort of me- medium-size, medium-distance plane, effectively. But yeah, SAFs, Sustainable Aviation Fuels, the other the other name for biofuels, they're what you're going to do for the cross-Atlantic flights and the intercontinentals, that's the word. It's also the technology that's furthest scaled. So you can buy hundreds of tons of sustainable aviation fuel today, and indeed many companies do, and they mix it in with their fossil fuels. So that technology is it's already here. Uh, it's just ramping up the production volumes and getting going. I'd say that a, the big problem with sustainable aviation fuels is what do you make it out of? You know, green electricity can be used to fly a plane. Green electricity can be used to make hydrogen. But if you're not sourcing your feedstock oils in a good way, then your SAF, your sustainable aviation fuel, maybe isn't so green. Um, and there's a lot of embedded emissions that you may be unaware of. Like if you're making your biofuel out of palm oil, then mm. there are carbon emissions due to land use changes. There are carbon emissions due to the way it's transported. You know, palm oil is produced entirely, basically, in places like Indonesia. Um, and if you're transporting that to the UK, there's a huge amount of emissions. Yeah. Also, the, the sheer loss of biodiversity that is caused by converting rainforest or or, or or just regular land into farmland is huge. So biofuels definitely aren't the silver bullet. We need to be really careful. Waste oils as well. They're very good. If you're able to sort of take McDonald's cooking oil and turn it into fuel, mm-hmm. that's fantastic because all you're doing there is displacing fossil fuel usage and you're replacing it. It's a huge reduction in carbon emissions. However, there isn't that much chip oil out there. 
And if you utilize every single drop of waste oil that the US produces, that would only replace about 25% of, it, of their aviation fuel. Yeah. So there's a, there's a limit that you can do with waste oils and something else is going to have to make up that difference. Hopefully it can be hydrogen, it can be it can be electric and perhaps even algae biofuels. But we have to keep developing these technologies and making sure they're there. Yeah. Mm, very, very true. Thank you for that insight. So you touched on this, you know, we obviously met on the ATI Boeing Accelerator. So we're talking about aerospace and, you know, the industry is, well, a little bit behind, I guess, compared to other industries like automotive, like you said. So do we really see a competition with those other sectors for the resources? What are your thoughts on that in a little bit more detail? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a great question. Avi- aviation is a is a really tough nut to crack because it relies on exploding carbon out the back of an engine for propulsion. It's, it's very hard to take to do a one for one switch. You can put an electric motor in a car, but you cannot put an electric motor directly in a jet engine. It's not going to work. It's also the very high regulatory burden and the high safety requirements that completely correct in aviation mean that technological change takes a lot longer. You can get, you can design and get an electric car out in a relatively short amount of time, whereas a plane is going to take maybe decades of, of, of time to make sure every system works together properly and make sure that everything is approved. So so aviation is a much tougher nut to crack than automotive. And 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 yes, in in time, they will compete for the same resources. I mean, even with the advent of uh, electric vehicles and electric cars, there will still be a very high biofuel requirement that that automotive that automotive needs you know large trucks long distance trucking will not be ev for a very electric vehicle sorry for a very long time and uh, i've i've seen estimates that say sort of 20% of all automotive will need biofuels almost indefinitely with a sort of no there's no end date put on that at the moment about 4% of road travel uses biofuel so you're talking about a five times increase in biofuel consumption and that's permanent and aviation may have to to live with that you know if we're, when we're talking about particularly about waste oils that are in limited supply people are fine over it and then you've also got shipping long distance shipping we, you know, we all we all rely on global trade we all rely on big tanker ships that are going everywhere but you're not going to put an electric battery in a in a massive container ship probably not going to put hydrogen in one of those for a very very long time so there's a lot of applications and a lot of competition. Yeah, I mean, I think as well, it, it's quite useful to compare automotive to aviation. Automotive, or like particularly within the biofuel space, automotive started having biofuel usage 20 years ago, and the government policies that were built in to to push that to, to start that going, um, you know, automotive were 20 years ahead of where aviation is at least. Mm, absolutely, and yeah, you touched on an interesting thing. What would you say is the government's role in all of this? Yeah, it's a good question. It, it touches on loads of things. I suppose I'd say that the government is has a huge role to play here in making businesses and making business models shift as quickly as possible. When green technologies are first introduced, they're not cheaper than the alternative. You look at you look at the journey solar panels have been on. They used to be very expensive, very inefficient, and they they you know, people, people sort of mock, mocked them almost. It was sort of a funny thing to have solar panels on your roof. But now solar panels are the cheapest form of energy in the world, pretty much. And the reason that happens is, is a concept called a learning curve. And the idea is that once you can generate enough demand for a product, the sheer number of people making it, the sheer number of people working on it and trying to make it cheaper, lets you hit this sort of Moore's Law style curve that makes the product cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. That's what's happened with 
silicon chips. It's what happened with solar panels. It's what's happening with wind and we can hope biofuels and hydrogen and stuff like this. Um, the government has to be there at the start to say this industry is going to be huge. That's why government subsidies for solar were so important in those early days because it meant you generated enough demand that you could hit a learning curve and eventually reduce the price. With aviation, governments have to have to force the issue. We have to have basically blending mandates for biofuels. So a lot of the Scandinavian countries and Europe have already have already started putting in legislation that says that a certain percentage, one or two percent of your aviation fuel has to be bio-based, has to be sustainable. And what that does is that artificially creates a sector and allows that that technology to get onto a learning curve and eventually reducing price. So governments have, have a lot to do. They, they're also going to have a lot to do to support business models. Um, aviation fuel right now is really cheap. Kerosene is such a cheap commodity and for a very long time, there's not going to be anything cheaper than it. It's, it's going to be really tough for companies to, to square that circle and, and, and stay profitable if they're being forced to adopt new technology, new planes, all stuff like this. And the government is going to have to be going to have to step in and say, look, this matters. The sustainability, this change matters more than your bottom line. And we'll make this obvious by supporting these businesses through it. The role of government is, is paramount in this. Yeah, absolutely. And other than the government, kind of to, to summarize, and you've touched on some of these points before, but I'd like to highlight them a bit more. So what does this space really need to accelerate this progress? Oh, it's a great question. So so in order to accelerate the adoption of sustainable fuels, I think the key thing is is government support for scaling projects. So this is this is often where uh, a huge amount of risk comes in. It's all right for a couple of guys in a lab, say at FicoBloom, to be messing around with algae. But then when you try and scale that project up to hundreds of thousands of tons, it, it's a lot of risk for capital markets. And, and the government actually, to their credit, in the UK at least, is is stepping up. They are funding a load of biofuel scaling projects, particularly for aviation. So that's great to see. But we need we need more. Like this, the scale of investment that green technologies needs is is huge. And the good news is that you invest that money now, and it will pay dividends in the future. This is not a, a money pit where you throw it away. It's actually you're investing in the future. And as things like solar and wind power have proved, if you invest money now, you will make it back later. Um, so governments really need to take a long term view of this, and that this is actually investing this money in green technology now is going to be cheaper than ignoring it and leaving it, you know. Other things that it needs, we really need aviation companies to take a lead in their industry where aviation is at the forefront of a lot of technologies and particularly around manufacturing and systems integration and stuff like this. And if companies like, you know, Boeing and Airbus and and, and others really force their suppliers to disclose carbon emissions, disclose the sustainability impact of their products, and then improve them, that can have huge ramifications for for industries for further down the further down the pecking order. Um, so for aviation companies to really use their position of power to push it, it, it would could be huge. Yeah. Mm. One other thing I picked up on that you mentioned earlier, and I think it would be interesting to talk a bit more about that. So obviously, you know, types of propulsion have a huge impact on greenhouse gas emissions. But what other things are there that we have to consider? Yes. So obviously, if you're blowing carbon out the back of a plane, the CO2 is is the really obvious one and the almost the, the easy one to replace. But there are other things like particulates, like water vapor trails that come out the back of a plane. And these have their own warming effect. These are greenhouse gases. And just because just because you put a biofuel in a plane or just because you put hydrogen in a plane doesn't mean you're necessarily avoiding that. So 
we have to make sure that the emissions out the back of an engine are are clean and that with the radiative effects of the tailpipe emissions are being reduced constantly. Um, it's very easy just to focus on the carbon content and get get lost in that. But I, th- I think in general, the industry is definitely doing this. Um, there's there's a lot of work on that. Other than that, it's, it, it's supply chains. What what are you actually building your, your plane out of? If your carbon fiber causes a lot of carbon production, if your steel manufacturer or your aluminium manufacturer is causing a lot of carbon emissions, then the sustainability of your industry is always going to be compromised. And, and some of this is going to rely on other industries innovating, you know, if the steel industry doesn't innovate, then we're basically all, all screwed anyway because we build almost everything out of steel. Mm. But aviation here can, again, as I said, play a leading role. They can push their suppliers and, and push other industries to to be better because aviation is is a sort of linchpin of a lot of engineering around the world. Very true. One other thing I was kind of asking myself, and I, I hate to touch on the subject because everyone is almost tired to be talking about it, but during the COVID-19 pandemic, Air traffic has obviously lowered significantly and at the same time, consequently, emissions from aviation have. But how do you think it will influence the strategies for aviation decarbonization? COVID is is obviously huge. There's not much that I can say that hasn't either already been said by someone much smarter and more knowledgeable than me. But I think what's clear is, is aviation took a really big hit. And for decades before the pandemic, it's been such a reliable industry in terms of growth and expansion, in terms of well, in terms of everything, it's just been a, a you know a steady, a steady increase. But it, it it's vulnerable. People can just stop flying, governments can just ground planes. And this is one crisis, but climate change is potentially going to be a crisis after crisis after crisis. And I hope this acts as a wake-up call and makes people realise that we need to change. And I, th- and I think I think it has. I think that the meetings that I've had with all sorts of people over the last year would never have happened before the pandemic. I think people have really woken up to the interconnectedness and the the fragility of our world. You know, it only takes one small microorganism and everything stops. Planes stay grounded and it's done. So I hope it acts as a wake-up call for everyone. Mm, absolutely. All right. Well, I'd love to find out a bit more about, you know, you guys at FICO Bloom. So, you know, I always get excited about startups that solve real and big problems. And you touched on this, FICO Bloom does exactly that. It's a really hard business to build, though. You know, there's a lot of, you know, waiting around on, you know, lab results. And there's a lot of um, really <laughs> long-term thinking. And you made a really good point earlier. This long-term investment is very beneficial, but it's still a hard one to sell to some investors nowadays, I believe. Why did you and your co-founder decide to do this? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I must admit, sometimes I wake up and I look myself in the mirror and I ask myself that exact question. Um, no, no, it's definitely got a lot of stress to it. And it, some some of those, those stresses are unique. Some of them are shared by other companies. But the, the really exciting thing about a project like this is, is just the potential impact. If we are able to replace... 1% of fossil fuels with algae biofuels. The, the greenhouse gas savings there are literally like hundreds of millions of tons. It's absolutely huge. And this project could do a lot more than that if, if it goes well. So the potential impact here is incredible. Um, myself and my co-founder both did, both did PhDs. We spent a long time basically doing lab work for other people. And the opportunity here to build something we we care about that we really love is is fantastic and it, i wake up every day excited to do more of it so 
in terms of funding, it, it, we definitely are asking investors in FICO Bloom to take a long-term view, which is why we sought out such great investors. I, I'd like to give a shout out to our investors at the moment, Zero Carbon Capital, who understand what it takes to build a, a tech company. They, they exclusively fund hardware-based clean tech companies at a very early stage, which is not an easy, an easy job to find those. People, people understand what needs to happen and they understand the timelines and those are the people you need to be mm. talking to. And I like to think those are the people we found. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that you and your co-founder met through Entrepreneur First, right? Um, so for those out there who might not be familiar, great program bringing very smart people together to build great businesses. How did you know that you two would be a good match? Yeah, I mean, how did we know? Did we know? I don't. I, I don't think we did. I don't. I don't think we did know. Like when I when I first met Ian, you know, we we, we were doing like a speed dating exercise at Entrepreneur First, which which for those that if if anyone hasn't heard of it, the best metaphor I've heard is is it's Love Island meets Dragon's Den. Um, where you <laughs> you repeatedly date co- different co-founders until you find an idea that works. And and to be honest, the whole purpose of Entrepreneur First, you don't meet someone and you know they're the right person. The whole point is meeting them and testing it. And if it doesn't work, you stop and you test something different. And if it does work, you keep going. And when, with me and Ian, when we started working, things worked. It, we clicked. We understood what each other wanted, what each other needed. We understood what each other could do, very importantly. you know, Myself and Ian, I think one of our advantages is I know what he can do. And I know what he can't do, and I know where I need to step in and take over, and he knows he knows where he needs to step in and take over as well, which is fantastic. Mm. Yeah, Entrepreneur First was absolutely great for us. We were neither me nor Ian had particularly big plans to be entrepreneurs before we did it. But most important thing when you're starting a company is having a an effectively a risk-free environment to test your ideas, and that's that's very mm. very hard to find. And it's one of the reasons that so few people go become entrepreneurs, and, and why so many entrepreneurs start off from quite wealthy backgrounds. EF give you a risk-free environment. They give you a, a stipend to live on while you're doing the program. They, If you graduate successfully, then they invest in you right from, right from the start. And it means that mm. you actually have the freedom to test your ideas and make sure what you're building is something that you can build and that should be built. They also provide fantastic guidance and fantastic critical responses, I suppose. I think one of the things that I found most rewarding about Entrepreneur First was we had a lot of mentors who were very critical and really put us on the spot, but in a in a sort of a safe, mm. a safe and rewarding way. I mean, I, when you when you start trying to build a company, you're always putting yourself on the line. You've got this you've got this idea. It's your baby. You don't want anyone to destroy it. And when you when someone pushes back against you, mm-hmm. that can be awful. It can be something you've just put a week's worth of love into, and then someone says that's a terrible idea, and then they tell you why it's a terrible idea, and you go, God damn, they're right. Yeah. But that's what that's also what you need. If it's a bad idea, then you shouldn't be doing it. Like you need someone oh, yeah. to be like that with you. And I think that you don't want to waste your time. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. I, I think the most important thing for an early stage founder to find is a mentor and advisors who can push you in that way, but in a way that is rewarding and is not completely and utterly demoralizing. And I, I think mm. entrepreneur first are very good at finding those people and, and, and getting them in, involved in the program. So, yeah. That's amazing. That sounds great. And I think what's interesting about moments like that, I mean, I I have been a founder myself, but these mentoring sessions, the hard ones, obviously, are terrifying and kind of exhausting and they're really bad. But I think those founders that get out of them with, you know, really great learnings and with the remaining will to keep (laughs) going are the ones that do feel like they, as a team, know and understand almost why they're doing this. And you mentioned that um, Ian and you both have like, obviously this very, very strong passion to, you know, climate change. And my assumption is there was things that you agreed on 
very early on that helped you probably through some of those moments um, when people were like, nah, this is this makes no sense. I don't know why you guys are doing this. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, I, I must admit, if you when we introduced ourselves to some investors and we said we're doing algae biofuels, uh, we got laughed out of some rooms. We got very harsh feedback from some people because this is a sector, this is an idea that has broken a lot of people and a lot of people's wallets and quite rightly they are skeptical that two mm. sort of two fresh-faced phds can, can make a difference but what kept me and ian going is a the fundamental science if you can grow rapeseed and make fuel out of it you can grow algae and make fuel out of it there is no there is no way that those two things can mm. that that is not true because algae are so much more productive and so much more efficient than other organisms the thing that really kept us going though was Again, it's it's the impact. It's what's the alternative? For me, I'm not sure what the title of this episode is, but I know we we banded around the idea hero or villain. If biofuels are done badly, they can be worse than fossil fuels. If you're making your biofuel out of soy oil, the carbon emissions can be up to three times higher than just by burning carb by burning fossil fuel. So mm. these can be these can be dirty, these can be awful, these can cause massive deforestation and they can cause hunger so biofuels have a really nasty side to them and a really nasty potential but also there's there's not there's not really an alternative for a lot of things like you need we, we will need a carbon fuel for a very very long time mm. and if we do not find a clean way to do it and a good way to do it then we're screwed so i see algae as a really great solution and mm. if we don't make it work i'm sure someone will make this work and I'm doing everything in my power to make sure it's us. Amazing. Well, I believe in you guys. <laughs> and thank <laughs> Thanks, you. Kevin. Thank you for sharing some of those insights around how you started out and the support you got from Entrepreneur First. You're obviously now closer to sort of a different stage in your business, hopefully soon. Do you think there is enough support out there for startups like yours? What would you say to a founder that is in a similar situation? Oh, good. Yeah. What would I say? As I said before, surround yourself with people that challenge you. It's easy to retreat into yourself and to only take advice from people that agree with you, but you really need people that think differently and push you to be different and better. So find those mentors. If you're going to get an idea like this off the ground, you're going to need money and you need to find the smart money. I think a lot of, a lot of founders, particularly from scientific backgrounds, are you know, quite rightly looking at a lot of grant applications and stuff, but grant applications are, they're only one, they're only one stream of financing. And there are investors out there who really, really care about the environment and are willing to take a risk on a, on a great idea. Zero carbon capital are, are, are one, but there are others as well. And those are the people you should be talking to. If you have a conversation with an investor and they don't, and they're not motivated by the same things that motivate you, it's probably not the right fit. And there will be investors out there that are. So yeah, keep looking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm obviously convinced that you will meet all of these milestones that Fico Bloom will have in the in the future. But can you tell us a bit more about what those are? What are the kind of next big goals that you guys have? Yeah, so so for us, our next big milestones are, are getting actual samples out. So making algae produce oil in the way we're trying to do and getting getting those samples to to people that can test them, can work out what we can do with them. After that, it's going to be productivity metrics, not just getting a small amount of oil out from our algae, but getting large amounts of oil out for long periods of time. So that's obviously going to take a lot of lab work. It's going to take take a lot of creativity, blood, sweat, and tears. But mo most of our most of our milestones are, are technical. But there's also milestones outside of our industry that that we have to push for. So it's going to be a really big day when sustainable aviation fuel really takes off. 
pun intended, fully intended. <laughs> and when when there's sort of more sustainable aviation fuel going into a plane than kerosene, that's going to be huge. And when perhaps we hit peak peak oil, there will be a day when we have the most aviation fuel in circulation. And then every day after that, it will become less and less and less and less and less. And it, mm. days like that, that, those are the days that make me really excited. Yeah. So those sort, of, those sort of industry metrics are really important and mm. important to us as well. We're pushing where we can to make sure people adopt them, adopt better policies. Very valuable work you're doing. <laughs> so my last question, well, it will hopefully be a good question for our audience. If you could ask any question to our listeners, what would it be? Yeah, I suppose the, in the near term, everyone roughly knows what avi- the aviation industry is going to look like. But in the in the long term, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a mystery to everyone. No one really knows. So I suppose my question is: in in fifty years' time, back in the down in the twenty seventies, what are we actually going to use to fly ourselves from London to New York, say, a transatlantic flight? What powers us across that distance, and how and how many journeys is it going to take? Are we going to have to have a stop over in Iceland and Greenland to get all the way there? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. I would love to hear from our audience. What do you guys think? Feel free to comment um, on our socials or get in touch with us in any other way. We will make sure the answers get to John. Thank you very much, John, for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Gabby. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. For information about Meta and the work we do, head to our website, meta.partners. There you'll be able to find links to our blog, the company LinkedIn page, and more information about the team. If you have any questions about today's episode or suggestions for future shows, our Twitter handle is metatalks, all in one word. And you'll also be able to find the team and all sorts of exciting things we're up to on there. We'll be back with a new episode of the podcast next week. Until then, stay well and stay in touch.